You're listening to Amphibicast. Welcome back, everyone. And I am really pleased to say that you guys gave me some great input over the past week. And um, one of you guys had asked for Nick Stacy to come on the show. And guess what? This episode, I've got Nick Stacy. So, <laughs> um, I don't even want to BS about anything else. I kind of want to get right into it because Nick and I talked a little bit off air and I think it's going to really make for a great show. So normally I'll kind of do like a little intro. I'm not going to do any crazy, uh, you know, shameless self-promotion or anything like that. So, um, Nick is coming to us right now, uh, with his significant other, Tyler. So Nick, uh, welcome. What's going on? Hey, Nick and Tyler here. We're just, uh, hanging out in a local park. We, uh, Found a nice quiet area to do this little interview away from some of the louder animals back at home. It's so funny, like being outside is quiet. Like I have to like retreat to like the deepest, darkest like closet in my house to get some quiet. <laughs> right. Yeah. Some of the birds, when they get excited, especially if they hear a stranger's voice, um, they can kind of scream as loud as a jet plane. So it can be a little overwhelming on audio. Yeah, I've 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 known some some bird people, and it's 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 really really intense. Um, yeah, yeah. Each type of animal person is a little bit, a uh, little bit interesting. Yeah, 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 yeah. I mean, we won't, we're not going to get into everything we talked about off camera, but um, every animal community has its own uh, peculiarities. So, uh, l- so let's get into it. I mean, you're the co-founder of Fragile Planet Wildlife, but before we get into all that, why don't you start at the beginning? Tell us, tell us your story. How did you get started with animals, and what led you up to where you are right now? I think with many people, it goes back to their uh, their roots, their childhood. Growing up, I mean, I've I've always had an interest in animals. My parents tell me as a as a tiny kid, my favorite things had to do with nature: plants, animals, insects, little bugs and creepy things, especially. Um, working with animals, I mean, as a kid, I've always kept things on and off, caught things when allowed and stuff. My parents were kind of strict in that sense. Um, so I had to find other ways to do it. There's a, a local sanctuary in eastern Oklahoma where I grew up and uh, my family knew the people that ran it. And I was able to get my foot in the door at a young age at about 11 years old. Um, the minimum age for volunteers that the state would let work with animals like that. And I was able to uh, start working with animals there. And it was very simple stuff. You know, I'd go in on the weekends. I'd clean things. They'd do tours and stuff like that. And when people would come by, you'd talk about the animals and where they came from, how to take care of them and stuff like that. And, I mean, from there, I just stuck with it. It's what I've always wanted to do. And growing up, I've been able to mold it into a career, essentially. Yeah, it's pretty amazing. And it's funny because I was thinking when I was making up my notes for the show, I was thinking, you know what? This guy is living the dream. I mean, this is like, dude, if you got into a time machine now and went back to like 1989 and said, Dan, get in, I would have been like, peace. Because what you have going on here in terms of your career and everything like that is, is absolutely amazing. I mean, it's something that I feel like anybody who has an interest in animals, animal care, et cetera, would totally strive to have, you basically got the dream job right now, right? Would you say? I mean, I won't lie. I enjoy every minute of it, but I won't sugarcoat it for people. It is an entirely different lifestyle. It is a ton of work. Um, I don't do things that most people get to do. I don't travel and take vacations for fun. 
Um, I'm doing various animal projects. Sometimes I'm traveling to different zoos to check on some of my own animals, um, drop off some of theirs. We do a lot of transporting and everything too. Um, And it's really hard to get away from the animals sometimes just in day-to-day life. Like even today, we kind of had to run away from home to get some peace and quiet to talk to a, to talk to a stranger that hopefully might be a friend one day. Yeah, absolutely. I, I think, oh, I don't know about you, but I hope our friends are ready. <laughs> right. So far, so good. Absolutely. Absolutely. Now, and uh, yes. working with animals um, growing up, I mean, I've always had an interest in amphibians and everything, but it wasn't recently or wasn't until just a handful of years ago that I jumped in and made it my thing i got my instagram handle my reddit and everything is indicator species um we have a the toad project and stuff that i did um but before that a lot of it was big cats um growing up i worked with a lot of the larger predators and stuff like that um a lot of birds of prey and stuff too um but i kind of think i found my little niche with the amphibians what do you think drew you towards amphibians because i we, we all life always takes us in different directions and sometimes we find ourselves in these places where we didn't think we would end up i mean was that did you actively seek out working with amphibians or you just sort of like ended up in that capacity i would say i kind of ended up in it so me and my significant run the organization um so we take it in our direction um as of now we have a board we'll get to that in a little bit um but before we turned nonprofit, it was kind of just everything was our own decision um and you know we do master plans so we don't just go out and get random animals here and there we make sure we plan for things accordingly and i actually didn't get any frogs at all my significant other started a project and he just got a few simple dendrobates species um, and he set up a couple simple tanks with some moss and leaf litter and just so we could plan like a nice bioactive tank and uh, i kind of stole the project from him and took it over and essentially gave him the boot and did everything myself there and kind of took it over. So for the most part, he does all of the, the official, the paperwork, the licenses, the talking to the professionals, the government, the zoos, the contracts. And I do a lot of the manual labor, um, most of the animal care, a lot of the amphibians and reptiles or cold-blooded things, you, if you will, um, coral, stuff like that. And he does the mammals and birds. You know, it's interesting, you know, what you said about being a a not-for-profit. I've heard a lot of people out there, and this is not to be, you know, critical of anyone, but I've heard people say, oh, I'd love to start a not-for-profit. It's a lot of work. And like you just said, there's a a tremendous amount of effort that goes into maintaining a not-for-profit that I don't think a lot of people fully grasp. I mean, just, can you just give us like a quick snapshot in terms of like, like when does the day begin and when does it end with, with the type of operation that you're running? Um, I would say it doesn't really end. I mean, so some of my things have alarms on them, for example. And if in the middle of the night, like if the temperature changes, the water gets too low, I get a loud buzz and I got to wake up and run and go see what's going on. Um, so it's, it's always like, it's all the time, 24 seven, especially if they're babies, animals and stuff like that too. Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. You know, it just, it takes a tremendous amount of discipline to be able to, you know, just jump up at the drop of a hat for something that, you know, somebody else would just been like, all right, it's 11 o'clock at night. My, you know, my thermostat is start beeping. All right, I'll deal with it in the morning or whatever. But no, you got to, you got to be Johnny on the spot and take care of it. Yep. Yep. And a lot of times it can be life or death with us, especially with some of these tiny animals that, you know, 
just a few minutes out of their environment can be death for them. Yeah, yeah, definitely, definitely. Yeah. So with the nonprofit, so we've had Fragile Planet as an organization licensed and doing business as since 2011. With as much that goes into running a nonprofit, we actually waited till just this past year to jump into it. Um, we wanted to sit back, get a lot of experience, um, and talk with a lot of other facilities that have made the leap before we did it ourselves. Um, it's not just doing it and getting it over with either. It is a constant maintenance. You have to worry about finances. You've got to worry about being audited. There's all of the bylaws. There's the board of directors. You've got to keep up with all of those people and everything that goes into it as well. Definitely, definitely. You know, it's just, it's so easy. To, I mean, like, I, again, what I said earlier, I didn't really mean to be dismissive. I'm just saying that, like, your job is still pretty awesome. But again, there's a tremendous amount of work that goes into maintaining that. You know, it's very, very easy to think that, like, all right, well, you know, you just get to play with animals all day and you, you don't. I mean, my job is obviously not animal related whatsoever, but... You know, I'm not necessarily just walking around with a mop all day. I'm, you know, I'm dealing with inspections. I'm dealing with, you know, inspectors. I'm dealing with all, you know, all the paperwork, all the purchasing orders, all that stuff that goes into maintaining a building. So it's not yep. necessarily as, as, as glamorous as everyone thinks. It's not like I'm sitting around with my feet up on my desk all day. There's a lot of work that people don't see. Um, but, and even for me, um, like if someone sat me in a desk job in an office, that would be so incredibly difficult for me because I'm moving all the time. I'm doing something all the time. I'm just scurrying around, essentially working. Sitting still is incredibly hard for me. Yeah, I haven't worked at a desk per se in probably close to 20 years. But now, as far as the Fragile Planet Wildlife Center goes, like, how did it begin and what, what are some of the goals? Because... I know that you focus on the care and needs of animals. That's kind of in your, almost like your mission statement, so to speak. I mean, how, how did it, how did it start off? And like, like, what are your, what are you looking to accomplish? So I've always wanted to work with animals. Um, and doing so you kind of have to rely on other people in other places. Um, and sometimes there's disagreements. You may not like something someone's doing. You may not like a certain policy or you may not just like how things are being ran. Um, and over the years, working at various private public zoos, um, we just kind of wanted to be able to do things our way, if that makes sense. Um, not that anybody's specific way is right or wrong. It's just a, a personal preference, if that makes sense. One of the big drives for me, um, the animals that we're caring for or that people are able to have and own, they kind of don't think of where the animal comes from um, or how they were able to get it. And that's something that's really big for me. So a lot of the animals we keep, we try to be able to benefit them in the wild as well. Oh, yeah, definitely giving back. I mean, some of the species that you guys work with are, I don't want to, I don't want to say unconventional, but you're not necessarily going to see some of these species at a smaller establishment, like, like the Adelopus species, which... Um, are you working with one species of Adelopus or two? I'm working with two species, potentially three. So I have the Balios, the Barbatonii, 
And then I have a black and white one that came in with the locale of Barbatonii, but its call is different and their head shape and they're just a little bit different. That's wild. I mean, that's we're going to get into that a little bit more in, in, in a little bit, but um, I mean, just to kind of backpedal a little bit, you, you guys have a lot of species that you're not necessarily going to see at the average. I mean, let's just say like yes. a, like a like a more not smaller but a more reasonable sized establishment. Yeah. So we've got things like ocelots, which are one of the most endangered species of cats native to the United States. They're actually what brought us down here to South Texas. Um, the county, Cameron County down here, is the last native range for breeding ocelots in the United States. So we felt if we were in situ, per se, with their, with them, we would be good for our organization. Um, even though we benefited the species and we sent our ocelot into AZA zoos for a breeding program, so our male is technically up at an accredited zoo up north and he's not even with us. That's that's interesting, really. Huh. Mm-hmm. So, I, I mean, it it's the benefit of the species when it comes down to it. And when they asked if they wanted us to represent his genetics in the population, it was a no-brainer for us. Do you think that... How do I how do I put this? Um, where I live, there are some smaller establishments that... Um, this isn't a reflection of their care or anything like that, but they sort of have like bread and butter species, meaning they're going to have ring-tailed lemurs. They're going to have maybe a couple of spider monkeys. They're going to have Barbary sheep. Yes. yes, Charismatic fauna, things that people know what they are. Yeah. And they're not necessarily that difficult to get. If they were, they would be everywhere. I mean, maybe I'm wrong, but um, you guys don't really fall into that box you kind of have a very very unique group of species i mean do you think that that in and of itself like i mean the people who come to see you i mean are these people who are like just kind of the average public passing by like it might be by me or do you have people that really coming in from other areas to to see what you have so as of right now we actually don't do any on-site visitation we are an outreach organization so this 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 year has been incredibly difficult with the pandemic. Uh, we've literally, like, this last week we did a couple programs, um, but this year it's been absolute zero. We had almost, like, 200 cancellations from throughout all last year to this year from bookings. Um, I bet you if we didn't have the pandemic, we would have been able to open up this next year. So it's kind of heartbreaking, but in the long run, um, I guess it wasn't meant to be. So... We, what we do, um, a lot of the animals we work with are extremely sensitive. Um, some of them didn't always come from the best situation either. Some of our primates were relinquishes. So how we're set up currently, it wouldn't be in the, all of our animals' best interests to have strangers around, if that makes sense. Oh, absolutely makes sense. Yeah. 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 So especially with the primates, they get incredibly stressed out with strangers, Um, or even with other species, some of them are hand raised and they get all kinds of issues whenever they're not raised with their own kind. Yeah. Primates are a whole, whole other Mm -hmm. entity unto itself. I just, you know, I hate when people, you know, the, 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 the further into this, down this rabbit hole I've, I've gone, the more I realize that just because you are familiar with one species doesn't mean that you're familiar with another. Meaning, like, I don't watch a lot of TV, but let's just say I'm sitting on the couch 
And it's always a news story. That's kind of how things get to the, the general public. But um, say a news story comes out about, I mean, there was a pretty bad situation back in, I think it was 2009 up in uh, Connecticut, um, where a woman was um, severely injured by a, a pet chimpanzee. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. But, I know exactly what you're talking about. But the point is, you know, I, I know nothing about primates. I keep some exotic animals. I keep exotic frogs. I have some snakes and, and arachnids. But the person sitting next to me is going to go, oh, wow, wow, what do you think? I say, I, I don't know any better than you. I, I don't, I know nothing about primates. I, I'm going to assume just from what little experience I have with exotics that this might not be the best situation in the world to have them in. But I can't, I, I'm not a, I'm not a, a, a chimp behaviorist, but I'm not going to comment on this. You know what I mean? So just because you're familiar with the species doesn't necessarily mean that you can be an expert on everything else. You, you, you follow what I'm saying? Absolutely. And it even goes into being an expert on the animal in captivity and the animal in the wild as well, because there's a huge difference there. Um, what they need in the wild to survive and what they need in captivity to survive are not the same. Now, that's a good point, because one of the and I kind of I, I kind of I, I plug this in every episode, but. The goal of the show, in part, you know, obviously, besides just being able to provide, you know, other share other people's experiences, people who have really, really uh, specific experiences with different species, people who have more generalized experience, basically just kind of, you know, creating this, um, I hate to, uh, oh, if I say masterclass, that's bad, but, um, <laughs> trying to get, trying to get in that direction. But, um, one of the things that I like to do is to get people on opposite ends of the spectrum to sort of recognize each other, meaning just like what you said there, the way that amphibians are raised in the hobby and the way they are adapted to exist in the wild are just like you said, two different, two completely different things. Meaning getting something to thrive in a glass box is very different from getting it to thrive in its natural environment where there's predation, there's changes in climate, there's all that stuff. So I like to get those two sides to at least recognize each other and come together because just as you said, they're, they're, they're two very, very different things. Yep. And the middle ground between them is information that will benefit both. Absolutely. Absolutely. Now, one of the things that was on your website and the, the wording of this caught my attention because I thought it was an interesting wording and I we talked a little bit off air and I know that you're going to elaborate on it but immersive personal encounter um what does that mean to you like what what do you want people to take away from an encounter with some of the wildlife that you work with so the way it's worded is to be like an attraction per se like a, it's almost like a hands-on encounter um we word it like that because there's a lot of stigma against the, the, the term pay to play, um, where you're paying an organization to play with their animal, per se. Um, and we try to steer away from that. The, a lot of places do the baby animal pulls and cub petting and stuff like that. And we're not necessarily on par with that. Um, uh, a lot of ours, it's interactive. It is hands on. And it's not with all animals, things that are sensitive, things that are dangerous or things that stress out easy. Um, are not going to be handled or pet, of course, or interacted with. Um, but we do have a lot of animals that are trained. They're target trained, they're crate trained, they respond to rewards and treats. Um, and we're able to have the people do those interactions with us, with the animal, um, and when applicable, be hands-on. Um, 
we have a bat-eared fox, for example, that is target trained. She's got this little target and a cue. And you could be five years old, you could be 65 years old. And no matter where you go with that target, she's going to come and respond to it for a reward afterwards. And anybody and everybody is able to do that with her. Um, we've brought her to schools and individual rooms. We've brought her into auditoriums with 150 kids. Um, but things like our monkey, um, we have an outreach primate. She was hand-raised by people. She was socialized. She does not get along with other monkeys. She relies on humans for everything. Um, she is not able to be interacted with. She could potentially be dangerous. There are zoonotic disease factors, um, and she has her own well-being as well. Strangers can scare her. Old so, and that's yep. And with all of this, um, there's the entire education topic as well. Um, so it's not just you're coming and playing with this animal. You're seeing their natural behaviors. You're seeing their adaptations, their ears, their sniffing, their senses, and you're learning about their natural history, where they came from as well. Oh, that's all very important stuff. I, I mean, my pathetic little example of outreach was uh, my daughter's elementary school. They used to do, and this has been suspended since last year because of the COVID, but they would do something called a brown bag lunch where during the winter months when it was cold, they couldn't go outside. They would ask parents and grandparents and whoever from the community to come in and share a certain skill or something that they would interest in, and they were interested in. So, of course, I did frogs. So I came in. With a couple of members of my collection, I had a couple of dart frogs. I mean, but nothing in that case is handleable. But what I tried to do was put a different spin on it and to say, well, look, you know what? These are my friends that I want to show you. I want to share them with you. And I want I want us to really appreciate how colorful they are. And people, well, not people, but kids would say, well, can we touch them? I say, well, you can't because they breathe through their skin and they're very, very delicate, but they're just as much fun to look at. So that kind of transition into, you know, uh, almost like getting in the door, so to speak, like once you kind of captivate people's attention with something, like just as you said, you know, with a bad-eared fox, that's going to be kind of a crowd pleaser. They're pleasant to look at. They're engaging. And then once you kind of open that door, then you can draw people in further to really get them to appreciate why this animal is here in the first place. Yep. You can read about something all day long and you, you may remember it, but if you see it in person, especially if it's something you have an interest in, you're almost bound to have a lifelong memory. Now, do you think that, you know, some of the more, uh, I mean, I, I, I'm, I'm always biased, but we're just going to say mammals because mammals are always a crowd pleaser. But do you think that once you get people hooked with a mammal that they're more likely to take interest in reptiles and amphibians and some of the less, you know, fluffy animals? You know, I actually do. Um, we've got a large Burmese python and people are always enamored by the mammals and stuff, but especially if they're afraid of snakes, when they see that thing and they see me interacting with it and me touching it near the head and stuff and it not phasing the snake or phasing me at all, it definitely makes them start questioning things because oftentimes they come up and ask questions about it too. Yeah, that's definitely something that is, is, it's, it's very rewarding. You know, when you have someone that come in and like my little, uh, my, my frog collection is not gigantic. It's nothing on par with say like something that, that, that you would have, or even some of the other, um, other hobbyists and breeders that I've spoken to, but you know, 
some people are just really, really into it and some people aren't. So you kind of can't expect everyone to be enamored by it to the extent that you are. But when you have that one person come in, like when my, I keep having to explain to my daughters that not everybody has this type of situation in their house. So occasionally they'll get friends over that are like absolutely crazy for it. And then you get some that aren't, but the ones that are, it's like once they get a look, then they start asking questions. And then once they start asking questions, then you can start the dialogue of explaining where everything comes from, how it lives, why it's important, etc. And that's, that's the key to getting into people's, you know, um, getting into people's, I guess, good graces as best as I could say it. Yep. Or almost a steward, a next person into the hobby. Yes. That's actually, that's, that's a much better, a much better word. Steward. Yes. Um, now I want to get into the, the Adelopis breeding program because when I, uh, I mean, I've been in and out of the hobby, you know, a lot over the past, I mean, I've been keeping frogs for 30 years, but I was more so into the hobby about going back about 20 years. And then I kind of took a break for a while and I came back and periodically I had seen Adelopis in the hobby. I'd never seen one at an expo or a show. I was never really a hundred percent sure of what their status was in terms of protection and being available, et cetera. But more people worked with them for a while and then they kind of disappeared again, but you've got quite a program going on. So I'm curious if you would share with the listeners, you know, how that started, what your successes and failures have been and, and you know, what, what's like, what are you working with right now in terms of the Adelopis genus? So for, in terms of like the regulation um, and what's around in the hobby and stuff, there's only one species that's heavily regulated, and that's the Adelopis zateki, the Panamanian golden frog, um, and that's the only CITES listed Adelopis. All of the others, um, it's just up to the country of origin um, of what their regulation, their quotas per se would be. Um, it's kind of a scary situation. Um, they're one of the most endangered species of vertebrates, um, especially amphibians. Um, and some of them are still collected out of the wild being critically endangered. Um, the purple atlopis, for example, they are a critically endangered species according to all literature and science that I can find um, from an extremely isolated range on a single mountain um, that's kind of being affected by gold mining right now. And a lot of them are collected. Granted, the collection methods yield mostly males and few numbers of females. Um, and from what I've found, they are a male-heavy population, so it's not necessarily taking a, a huge toll. Um, I don't know that to be fact or anything, actually. Um, but for how things work in the United States with some hunting seasons and taking certain sexes, um, taking males when there's a male-heavy population isn't the worst thing that's done. But it is in my mind, not a good thing that they're critically endangered and still collected out of the wild. Um, honestly, I would like to see stricter regulation on something like that um, in terms of a conservation aspect. Um, that's honestly why I'm trying to breed them. It took me for forever to hunt down actual females too. Um, well, I mean, why do you think that is that they're typically only males that have seen available in the hobby. I mean, obviously if the populations, I mean, I'm not, I'm not too familiar with the genus, so, you know, forgive my, you know, my uh, ignorance, but I mean, what's, what's behind all that? What I've gathered, um, males seem to stick near the streams and call and the females leave and it's towards the end of the wet season, towards the dry season that the females head back to the water 
Um, and then from who I've talked to, when females are found, they're found already in amplexus with males. And that's why there's so few of them. And oftentimes why they have issues is that's a, a stressful moment for them. And amphibian breeding in the males kind of just latch on. Um, well, some amphibian breeding. And the females kind of go underwater to get them off and they lay in a little cavern. So whenever they're out collecting, they can hear the males and they can see them perched out. So they're easy to find. And then they only occasionally find a female when they're implexed with a male. Interesting. Interesting. You know, as far as what you say about, you know, increasing regulations, it's, it's such a, it's such a a heavily, yeah, it's such a heavily debated topic. And, you know, I don't, you know, I have my opinions on certain things and sometimes my opinions kind of flip flop. I, I do agree with you though, that I mean, like when you say tighter regulations, I mean, my, my take on it is that it's not necessarily so much that you are eliminating it. I mean, I know that there are some people who are very, very really militant about just eliminating it altogether. I don't think that that's possible because regardless of, I mean, look, I don't think that would yeah. be a good thing either. I mean, drugs are, you know, cocaine's illegal, but people still do it. You know yep. what I mean? I'm not advocating that or anything. I'm just using it as an example. Is something can be illegal forever, and you're still going to push that black market for it. So, I mean, my attitude has always been if you can do something sustainably that's not detrimental to a wild population, you're 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 going about it the the right way, the reasonable way, by, like I said, both sides acknowledging each other. So if yep. you have, you know, a... a an organization that is doing captive breeding and, you know, saturating the market with, with captive bred healthy stock and you're eliminating that need to pull from the wild. To me, at least that seems like a a more reasonable compromise, but I do agree with you that I don't think that like completely unrestricted trade should, should be able to go on because it's, it's, I mean, let's just call it what it is. It's, 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 it's bad news because you're going to wipe out a species. You're going to wipe out a locale and, it, it, it for what you know what I mean to keep it in a glass box it just doesn't seem it just doesn't seem right to me yep and if you're not protecting where they come from they're just as doomed as if they all get collected out of the wild too yeah yeah I mean field collecting you know I mean from what I've heard in the, the different interviews that I've gone on you know I've uh, done with people is that some of these populations are so small you could be talking about an area that's maybe a, less than a square mile or a few acres and whether it's development for agriculture whether it's it's field collection whether it's disease whatever these small areas are so fragile that one little stroke of the axe is enough to fell the whole tree and yep that's i i agree with you that that's something that you cannot you just you can't have that mm-hmm. now how did you how did, we, did you successfully get your, your, your Adelopus to breed? So I've had them about a little over two years now. I bought 2.2 sexed individuals from Wakiri Selva Viva um, in Ecuador, and they came from Indoor Ecosystems. He's the U.S. representative for them, and he handles everything. Um, it's really easy, and it's quite actually uh, nice to do. Um, the entire first year, I literally was just like terrified. Um, I've, 
they were the first at Lopus I ever kept. And I wanted to get captive bred in the first place because I've always been scared of the stigma of them being sensitive wild caught animals. Um, so I just was just a lot of sitting back, observing behavioral and research. I did a, as much research as I could, um, contacting all kinds of zoos and aquariums that have uh, bred at Lopus, um, different institutions, colleges, conservation organizations. Um, and I kind of just went from there and pieced together a plan of action. Um, I essentially s- created a, a season for a few months and kept parameters extremely stable. Um, and then I adjusted temperature, humidity, um, and feeding. And I just kind of toyed with it here and there. And you can kind of track the body condition, the females and the males, their activity and their behaviors. Um, and I just toyed with introductions and pairings. There's a lot of information um, about like Adelopis in the wild. Um, so you can kind of figure out when you they find tadpoles in streams in the wild. Um, I had a lot of help from Dallas World Aquarium staff and St. Louis staff on some information, um, especially with diet and water quality. That was a big one as well. Um, And I think that that water quality was the honestly the single most important aspect to it. Um, There's been other people that have had Adelopis spawns Um, that that seems to not be the, the hardest thing, but it is rearing the tadpoles. To morph animals that morph out with good legs that has been the incredibly hard part for what seems to be the majority of everybody that's not the first time i've heard that actually i had um i had mike novi from rainforest junkies on a couple episodes back and he did uh, he had a an, an antelopus breeding project on and what he said was you know very very similar to what um you know what what you mentioned that uh, trying to control the diet and figure out what they're eating and i mean he had you know he had some different methods and whatnot that he had success with but it's amazing how much diet really does play in the development of a tadpole. I mean, I've, I mean, I don't keep anything that dramatic, but you know, I, I constantly, I, they, they've got to be my favorite species because I never stop talking about them. I never talk about my tero, my terabellus. I always talk about my uh, epipedibates anthonia, but uh, I started changing the diet of the tadpoles and I started just like stuffing them with food, giving them, you know, spirulina, spirulina wafers, dead fruit flies, fish flies, everything. And the more I feed them, and the more variety that I feed them, the healthier they seem to the healthier they seem to grow, and the more tadpoles I'm having morph out successfully. Because I had just like what you said with limb development, um, you know, spindly leg things like that. And the the more attention that I paid to diet, the better results I had. Yep. Yep. Now, what sort of diet would you, would you be like working with with them? So what I used for the atlopis um, was a base of spirulina. And I used Missouri brand crocodile diet for the majority, like the protein. And I ground it all up together. Um, I used a little bit of like a, like a, a vitamin and mineral powder um, that from Missouri as well. And that was pretty much it. The application was kind of important too. Um, Adelopis tadpoles have a very specific feeding method. They have like a, a suction cup mouth and they rasp food off the sur- surface of objects. Um, so they don't eat free floating foods. So if it's blowing around in the water, they're really not going to do much with it that I've found. I had to uh, grind it up into a powder all together in like a mortar and pestle. 
So it was kind of like the um, like a, a mineral grade, like a vitamin you dust for your frogs, like that fine powder that statically clings to stuff. Um, and I'd take a little pea-sized chunk of it, and I'd wet it with RO water and turn it into a watercolor paste. And I painted river stones. I'd let them dry out um, just at room temperature and airflow. And then I would set those in to feed. And it would rehydrate, and then it would not peel off the rocks. That's, so that's pretty amazing, actually. Like a, yeah. I created a film algae, essentially. Yeah, yeah. Well, the you know the conversation I had with 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 Mike, he mentioned something very very similar that he was sort of letting them feed off of some of the algae and some of the diatom blooms that were going on in in the the vivarium that he was keeping them. It's 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 interesting, like just like you said, there's different species of tadpoles have different species of uh, different species, different methods of feeding. And if you're not aware of that, you're not necessarily going to have success with them. But that's, 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 I mean, how long did it take you to figure all that out? I mean, is that something that you would, someone kind of suggested to you or you just kind of did it by trial and error? The Missouri crocodile diet was suggested to me by one of the zookeepers at St. Louis zoo. Um, Justin Eldon, actually, he was extremely helpful. Um, they spawned them there. Oh, and then there was also, um, what kind of green was that that I had to hunt down? I have dyslexia, and my brain's making me think of the wrong lettuce, but I used a lettuce as well. Really? You don't recall what type? You don't recall what type? Dandelion. It was dandelion greens. Oh, dandelion greens. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. Sorry. Yeah, I'm so far south in Texas, we're kind of a little arid here, so there's no dandelions. And then I didn't want to use some from the store with any sort of pesticides or anything like that. So I had to hunt down fresh dandelion greens somehow. I actually, the local zoo down here, they, they uh, grow some for some of their animals. And I was able to get uh, some fresh cuts from them. So I, I used a dehydrator and I dehydrated that. And I used that. Um, and uh, uh, someone that does work with uh, colleges um, and institutions with Adelopis suggested that for me. So majority of all of the diet um, was suggestions to me. Uh, I, I tried to emulate a natural diatome and algae diet in the tank. Um, and initially, it was kind of extremely hard. But as the tank matured, um, a real nice film algae grew everywhere. And I could actively see him eating that too. Now, would you keep them in... A semi-aquatic or I guess, I mean, what's the word people use? Paludarium? I mean, how would you set up their, their vivarium for, for breeding? So, um, like how I was saying, we master plan for everything um, and we are working on a limited budget. We do work full time outside of running the organization to support ourselves and the organization as well. Um, they were expensive animals. They were very expensive toads. Um I housed sexes separate, males in a tank, females in another tank. I didn't want any sort of unnecessary breeding or aggression that could cause any risks at all. Um, And then I had a third tank for the spawn chamber. So they were housed like dart frogs on a dry substrate with plants and water inside the plant axles. And I misted regularly and stuff. And then the spawn tank I kept active at all times. And I would periodically move them in and out of it after the first year when I started my breeding attempts. Now, that was what I did to ensure the best case scenario for me. Now, I know Alex Sens, Dallas World Aquarium, 
and St. Louis Zoo keep both sexes together, but they also have larger sized habitats than I do. I'm using exoterra tanks. So they're 18, 18, 24 for the males, and then 24, 18, 24 for the females because they're larger, and then the same for the spawn tank because they would all go together in the spawn tank. So they're not huge. They're smaller footprint tanks. They're, I mean, the minimum size for what people would keep the average large obligate or small groups of frogs in, and I just kept uh, two individuals in each tank at a time. Um, other zoos and other people also keep them all together without issues. They go into amplexus and unamplex without an issue. Now, I've also heard people that have had losses with amplex, like the males never left the females, or the females never dropped their eggs, um, or just too much stress, or they submerged underwater for too long. And that's why I went the safer route. Um, but it, in, with enough space, it seems to be no issue whatsoever. That's interesting. I mean, is there any type of there, there's so there's you've never observed any type of like male on male or female on female aggression that might go along with 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 breeding? Because I know that some species or at least from what I've heard is that some degree of competition will facilitate breeding. I mean, have you noticed any of that at all or, or no? So with the Atlobus balios, I saw absolutely no aggression between any of them at all. Um, the males would compete between calling positions, um, but they would never physically bother each other. They'd wave at each other vigorously, like their little hands, little flagging communications. Um, but I never saw them actually touch each other or wrestle or spear each other or anything. The purple Adelopis, um, the Barbatonii or Barbatoni, they do like spear each other. They like point their little heads at each other and then they launch and they like, they kind of stab each other. And I've, seen them wrestling around and tussling. So I do house them individually as well. What's it like to see the, the waving? I mean, for, for people out there who aren't, who aren't really familiar with Adelopis, they have this behavior where some of them live in, in these very, very loud streams or like not really a river, but like, um, so their adaptation was they, they'll gesture to each other with hand signals if they can't make like an, audit, an auditory call or something like that. I think David Attenborough narrated a, a bit of film on it somewhere, but did you ever actually see them doing that? I mean, what was it like seeing that up, like up close and personal? Yeah, actually, um, both sexes do it too. I've got videos of it. Um, it's really, really cool. Generally, I've only seen them doing it during periods of high humidity. Um, and when they're in view shot of each other, of course, I made sure to house my tanks within eye shot and ear shot of each other so that they could communicate. And even through the glass, they'll, they'll see each other and they'll start waving their little arms. That's wild. I love when they do that. What's the call yeah, sound like? I'll send it to you too. It's like a, a real quiet, chirpy trill, like a little rolling. Okay. It's like would, similar to like a tinctorious or, or no? It's, it's a little louder than that. It's not anything like a terribilis. Um, it's, it's like, it's pleasant. It wouldn't bother anybody on the phone or anything like that. Okay. So I can make it my ringtone then. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> like, so I've got, I've got some Ufaga and they can get pretty loud and they, they can call pretty bold. And these guys aren't like that at all. It's, it's more of a pleasant trill. 
Now, what sort of diet are you feeding them? I mean, are you using fruit flies or are you using something else? I mean, are they are they like microphages the way like like my terabilis will take small crickets. I mean, they'll they'll take like my finger if I stick it in there, but my even my large tanks they'll they struggle to take, you know, high, well they don't struggle, but the biggest thing they'll take is hidey. They won't they won't even take the, the smallest pinhead crickets. So they don't have like a crazy feeding response like the terabilis. They're not going to like run over to something and grab it and stuff it in their mouth with their feet. Um, but they, they're large enough to take small crickets too. Um, bigger than pinheads. Uh, I, I'm really bad with the sizes. But like the width of the average pinky fingernail or so. I don't know if that's like eighth inch, quarter inch or so. So they, they can take decent prey. Small house flies even. Um, for diet. I feed a staple of Heidi eye flies, um, golden or red eye, black or whatever, just the larger, more common flies in the hobby. Um, I also feed bean beetles. Um, for a while, I was culturing spiders. I wasn't really culturing them. Um, we have a ton of orb weavers outside, and I was just pulling egg masses. And I would let the eggs hatch into little slings. And then I would just put a little uh, little glass bowl in there of little spider slings, and they'd go and eat those. I was also feeding parasitic wasps. Because we have a lot of the mammals and birds outside, um, for fly control, we order fly predators, which are parasitic wasps, from a company. Um, and when our fly populations are under control or out of season and stuff um, for flies, I use those as a feeder source as well because it's just a, a little tiny micro feeder and they're raised completely organic and everything, and they're used in many accredited zoos too. So I thought that'd be a an extra good a diversity. That's I never would have even thought something like that existed. We've used them for years, and I I never thought of it. And then with the Atlopus project, I just thought of however many ways I could diversify the food as possible. I was going to do. That's one of the things I think people struggle with. I mean, I've always been a big pro- a big proponent of varied prey items that have been appropriately gut loaded like my my gut load i i for my crickets anyway i try to vary it i kind of go between like carrots collard greens and when i can get them dandelion greens and occasionally i'll throw something else in there like i'll just throw in like a protein maybe like once every couple of months maybe whether like you know whether it's just like dry dog food or or like like a you know piece of bread or something like that just just to every couple of months um but a lot of the smaller feeders, like the like the Hydea and whatnot, I mean, the only way you can really gut load them is what your, you know, what your media contains. I mean, do you guys make your own media, or do you rely on a pre-made media? I do make my own media, and my recipe is really extremely simple. It's like the most basic thing. That's the most. It's like the common one on Dendroboard. Um, brewer's yeast, potato flakes, powdered sugar, and then some vitamin supplements I add to it. Beep pollen and vinegar for anti-mold agent um i don't like to use that blue methyl blue or paraben or stuff um i read some articles about amphibian disease and cancer and stuff like that from a zoo with hellbenders in it so i just that stuck in my head for whatever reason so i just use vinegar for that yeah since i started using vinegar and well i put cinnamon in mine as well because it had some issues with mold the um, the apple cider vinegar is the best. That and the um, oh, what did I just say? Um, oh yeah, the uh, the cinnamon, the apple cider vinegar, and the cinnamon. I haven't had an issue with mold in like 
the year since I've been using it because I was kind of against it for a while. But then once I started using it and getting used to it, I don't have mold at all anymore. I haven't lost a single culture to it. I, uh, I did cinnamon for a while. Um, for whatever reason in New York, the brand of potato flakes would smell really bad. And I like swear it started smelling sour or something like that. So I used cinnamon to make them smell better. But down here, there's not an issue. Maybe it's more dry or something. I don't know. I don't know. It might just be whatever's, you know, whatever native mold is, is just floating around. Cause I mean, bear in mind, I mean, I keep mine in the basement, so it's kind of humid all year round. So I don't know if this is just mold that was, you know, I, I don't know if it was just already there in the air and it just happened to colonize the cultures. I don't know. Um, one thing I had, I have happened every so often as I'll have them actually ferment. And sometimes I would put like banana in there if we had like a bunch of old, like rotten bananas, but those would ferment really, really quickly. But the past couple of times I just had regular cultures. I'm like, I'm like, oh man, that stinks. And then I realized, oh boy, it fermented. So I don't know. It just seems, it really does seem to vary based on person to person, location to location. But I I use pretty much the same recipe as you. The only thing I never used was the bee pollen. What what are some benefits to using the bee pollen? So from what I've done a lot of research on, um, a lot of insects that these animals eat are pollinators. So they're going to and from plants having pollen on their bodies. Um, and there's just there could be many things in it that are beneficial. So it's just something that I do. Um, I've not found or seen any very strong leading arguments scientifically for it. Um, but I've also not seen any negative connotation that it could have either. It's not the first time I've heard that. I, I've heard of people using things like honey. I've heard of people using bee pollen. I've heard of people using royal jelly. I've, I've heard of all that stuff. So it's it's so it's so hard because again, it, it's it's not necessarily doing any harm, but it's so difficult to tell what recipe works, what ratio of this to that. I don't know. I mean, I, I keep it simple. I don't always get the best results, but there, I'm sure that there's other factors that work with my with my methods that I'm not necessarily getting the the massive booms that some other people are. Yeah. So with, with that, there there was a there's other things that I fed to uh, rice flour beetle larvae, um, the little mini wax worms and stuff like that, micro mealworms. Um, but I it's it's hard to keep that stuff up constantly all year round, especially if you have to culture your own. Um, I, I do a lot. I'm busy. I'm doing things all the time. And it's I, I do it seasonally. So like right now, I'm kicking up gearing cultures and collecting spiders and stuff like that. Um, spider egg sacs to feed off right now in prep for spring. So I'm fingers crossed. I've got everybody conditioning the Balios and the Barbatini, the Barbatoni um, for, for spawning this spring. So and that's an interesting idea also about the spiders. I mean, I have a tremendous amount of house spiders in my basement just because of the, the fruit flies that go rogue. You know, it's a basement. There's, there's spiders there. I have a love-hate relationship with them. I don't like to kill spiders because that would make me a you know a hypocrite because I keep tarantulas. But at the same time, they make a mess because they spin webs on everything and it's more dusting for me to do. But I have a lot of them that will actually live inside the vivariums with... Um, I don't see it in my terabilis, but I see them with, with, with my tanks. And I never noticed them getting eaten either. So I don't know if it's just... Yeah, so I've noticed the little tiny spiders that hang upside down by their webs, like the little false widows and things like that. They don't have much interest, or the frogs don't have much interest in them as a prey item. Um, but the if they're crawling around on the ground, like a like a ant or a beetle or something like that, they seem to get more attention. Huh. 
I, I mean, it makes sense. I guess it mimics, or not mimics, but it's it's similar to what they would normally, uh, yeah, normally, but what they would normally encounter in cap dark crevice versus in the open. Yeah, 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 yeah. Now, what do you think the future is going to hold for Adelopus? I mean, do you think that they're going to become like on par with Tinctorius and the Hobby in like twenty in like ten years? Do you think that they're going to have you know, greater issues because of like overcollection in the wild. I and mean, wh- where do you think that they're going to end up in like the next decade? Assuming we all live through the plague, but you know, right. So yeah. this year was kind of a little hectic and I feel like it was an eye opener for some. Um, Wakiri in Ecuador has kind of been the only place that has ever offered captive bred at Lopez for sale ever. Like there's really not than anywhere else none of the zoos and other conservation centers that work with them um were are doing that like the panamanian golden frogs here in the u.s um they are not commerced in the trade at all those are just acquisition disposition freely between the zoos for the the program and the population demographics and stuff um it wasn't until wakiri developed their conservation through commercialization of animals that captive bred at lopez were ever available anywhere um before that it was just wild caught individuals um from what i've gathered there's been me and one other person that have ever had adelopus come out of the water and onto land um since they've ever been kept and that's been since what i can find the 40s and 50s for some of the earliest imports to the united states yeah, that's, I mean, when I, you know, I followed your Instagram and I saw that, I'm like, wait a minute, how did he do that? Because <laughs> I'd, I'd, I'd heard of maybe one or two people who've, who've done it. I've, I've heard of a few people, I've heard of a handful of people who tried it, but I've never really heard of, like, like you said, maybe more than one or two people who succeeded. So I thought it was pretty amazing. And, you know, just like what you said about Wakiri, it, it, it just seems like it's the only responsible way to go about it, you know? I mean... Yep, and that, that honestly, with all of my sales, I'll be donating back to them as well. Um, this year with the pandemic, was a the, the big eye-opener was Wikiri took a huge hit. They weren't able to export animals. They weren't able to sell things like they normally were, which is how they get a lot of their funding. Um, if the company had to close down, that's the end of the captive bred at Lopez from Ecuador. And that would be a a real shame because, you know, again, being able to get something legally is going to be a lot more, you know, better for the the earth than, you know, it's just, it's amazing. Something like that, you, you work so hard to do everything the right way and then something happens and then the wrong was, way becomes, yeah, the wrong way becomes easier again. Yep. Yeah. It's, it's kind of frustrating at times too, honestly. Um, I, I would love to see Adelopus as common as Tinks one day. Um, I don't think it'll ever get to that. Just people are a little scared of them because of their sensitivities, um, with especially with the wild-caught ones and stuff. The captive-bred ones I've found to be incredibly hardy um, and extremely forgiving. I mean, my Balios have been at almost 85 degrees without, a, without any issues at all. Um, granted, you know, good ventilation, it's not a sopping wet tank, so they can thermoregulate with evaporation without an issue. Um, but they're, they're incredibly hardy animals. They are able to take a wide range of food. Um, they get pretty decent size. They get about the size of a, a good tincturius or a, a ratus per se. 
Besides the Atalopus, what other species are you working with? So I have the Atlopus balios, and I have Atlopus barbatonii. I've got 2.2 of each of them, and then I have two males of a black and white locale that came out of uh, um, the same area as the purple barbatonii. So they, they came in on the same import as the purple barbatonii, but the males' calls are different between the purples and these black and white ones. I think I've seen pictures of them. The uh, the black and whites. Yes, yes, I posted them. Yeah, I, I think the yeah. reptile report shared it too. Yes, I think that's exactly. Yeah, that's where I saw it. But I mean, besides the Atalopus genus, like, are there other genera of frogs oh, that you're working with? Okay, sorry. No, um, no, it's okay. Yeah, actually, so I mostly keep Ufaga species. I've got a large variety of Ufaga pumilio locales. I've got a few Ufaga hysteronica locales and a few Slavatica. Um, uh, Ufaga slavatica, and then I've got red lamani as well. I'm keeping a few types of tree frogs, like the Australians' magnificent tree frogs. Uh, I've got the Mexican tree frogs that people often call Jabba the Hutt, the Philomedusa savai or savaguai. I don't know how to say that that word there. Um, I've got some glass frogs. I've got some Boltley glossus salamanders. Um, I've got some native green salamander species that actually came from indoor ecosystems. That's t- Tim Herman as well. Those are wicked cool too. Yeah, I've I, I've actually been I've been trying to get. I know he's a busy man. I've been trying to get Tim on the show actually. <laughs> um, very very busy man. Yeah, I know, I know, I know. I don't, you know, I hey, everyone's got to, you know, everyone has to do what they do. Um, but yep. t- you know, Tim, if you are out there, I I I'd love it if you came on. Um, yeah, it's, I mean, are the antelopes your favorite though? I mean, is there, like, is there a go-to species that you think to yourself, all right, well, at the end of the day, if I could just work with one, what would it be? The atlopus, honestly, they, I've kind of fallen in love with them. They are, they're extremely fascinating animals. Just between their slower metabolism, the way they walk versus jumping everywhere, their little visual communications, that, that's incredibly rare for amphibians. So I think that's super cool. Um, and their conservation stu- status too. They're a they're a they're a conservation animal essentially. Being able to buy them from Wakiri and donate back to Wakiri, spawning from them, I kind of it makes me feel good about being able to do it with the hobby, in a hobby aspect. Yeah, I think that that's one of the reasons like the hobby faces a lot of criticism is because the hobby takes, and now with places like Wakiri and Tesoros. Um, places like this, they're, they're, you're giving back. You're re- you're returning something back into that environment rather than just taking it from it. You know, I mean, it, it's just to me that 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 has to be the way of the future. You know, you can't. And you know, this isn't even just the frog hobby. It's almost everything to do with wild animals in captivity as well. Oh, absolutely, absolutely. I mean, you must. I mean, given your job, you must see it with with everything i guess i mean from from mammals to invertebrates it runs the gambit yes yep what what are some of your attitudes towards conservation i mean if i don't want to put you on you know put you on the spot but like what what do you think what do you think could be improved to better you know better allow conservation i think anybody that is able to enjoy and care for these animals in their own time should also be able to try and at least benefit them in the wild 
and if not benefit them in the wild, do something or some type of something to be able to benefit the species, um, whether it be just communicating through hobbyists and bettering their animals in captivity itself, um, or even just outright donations. Everybody can't afford it. Um, these toads, this is, you know, I try to donate everywhere to all of our animals and it gets hard at times, but these toads were able to, I'm going to be able to send a nice chunk of money down South to people in Ecuador down there for the toads. That's definitely an admirable thing. I mean, my attitude is this, look, even for a relatively inexpensive frog, let's just say an erratus. Okay. An erratus can run you anywhere from I mean, I've seen them as low as $20 up to maybe like Pina Blanca up to what, 100, 150. It's, it's not a ridiculously expensive species. Well, let's just say that you order, you know, you, you order a trio and right that, let's just say that you're middle of the range, say you're at a hundred bucks and then you're going to add the shipping, which is going to say maybe 50 bucks or you're at about $200 in tax or whatever. I mean, you can't cough up an extra five bucks you know what I mean? To, to, to put back into the source from where a lot of these species came, although not every, most people aren't pulling erratus out of the wild. But I mean, if you catch my drift, it's like if you have the money to lay out some serious coin on frogs, I mean, you can cough up a couple of bucks to at least put back into the environment. Yep. And there's enough people in the hobby that it'll add up. Um, like there's some of the groups on Facebook. They've got over 10,000 people that are interested in this trade and hobby. That's a lot of people. Mm -hmm. And that's, you know, a lot of the groups have the same people doubled and stuff like that in each group or not doubled, but the same people in each group. But there's there's many groups and some of them are bigger, some of them are smaller. But as a collective, the hobby is able to make a difference. Um, Even if you're not benefiting the exact animal you have in the wild, you can still benefit amphibians in general. There's plenty of uh, conservation organizations um, here in the United States for animals, native animals, and other in other countries, non-government organizations for conservation of animals. Um, there's the different frog pod labs and stuff like that in Central and South America. A lot of the larger accredited zoos here in the United States do conservation programs. Um, I know you mentioned Mark Mandico with the Amphibian Foundation. Um, they do a bunch of really cool stuff with native flatwoods amphibians. Um, so I know if anybody has anything extra and stuff like that, they can always use donations as well. Yeah, Mark is uh, Mark's amazing. I, I had him on the show uh, a few episodes back. And the Amphibian Foundation, they do so much. Right, I'm actually taking um, – they offer a class, an online course – and I started in September and I'm about halfway through the course and it's absolutely amazing. I mean, the amount of information that you receive that's both, you know, both practical and at the same time, really, really interesting. I mean, it's on par with a college course. It's absolutely amazing. So, I mean, if you're out there and you really want to bone up on, and it's it's not just amphibians, it's, it also gets into uh, reptiles. I haven't gotten to that point in the course yet, but it's an incredible course and you know, the, the tuition for the course obviously goes to fund them and their research, which is, I mean, it, it's, it's amazing. The amount of effort that they put towards amphibian conservation, education, and awareness, it's, it's absolutely incredible. I've, ne- I've never seen anything like it before. So, Mark, Mark if, you're, if you're out there listening, you know, thank you. And, um, 
you know, I'm, I'm enjoying the course. If you guys are into it, I would highly recommend you register for it. It was all online. And I will say things like that are extremely beneficial. I've not taken that course, um, but back in my zookeeping days, I've done professional development um, for the zoos I was employed at. And I've been sent to conferences and workshops and stuff like that. And they absolutely do help. Um, I know I talked about water quality, but we didn't go into detail or anything like that with that lopus tadpoles. Um, I do saltwater stuff. I have saltwater coral. I've got some saltwater fish and sharks and stuff like that. And the saltwater aquarium water maintenance directly had an influence on how I cared for the atlopus and the, the tadpoles for them. Interesting. I mean, kind of almost like a, I mean, so you kind of drew your conclusions about water quality from like a lecture on saltwater maintenance. Is that how you? Yeah, yeah. essentially. Yep. Um, just, uh, about water quality, water chemistry, um, how to adjust certain levels of different, um, aspects of the chemistry of the water, you know, dosing certain things to remove phosphates or changing the hardness and softness of the water as well. Those were all extremely important things, um, including the oxygen level. Uh, I noticed if the oxygen level dipped below a certain amount, they would kind of like a pool up together in the fastest flowing environment they could because that was more oxygen that they could take in when the oxygen level was low in the water. So I actually had to, when, as my atlopus grew and I started notice their behavior changed, I had to add an extra air pump because there was so many of them in my environment. It seemed like they were using up a lot of the oxygen in the water. That's another thing. Um, they are mass spawners and a lot of people are used to taking care of a couple of tadpoles in small amounts of water at a time. So when you have a large amount of tadpoles and they're actively growing and they kind of can hit a carrying ca carrying capacity. Sorry, I said it there. Um, they can kind of hit a carrying capacity in their environment, and it can have a huge negative aspect, and you can have a tank crash essentially from it. Now, would you? I mean, would you cull? I mean, like, let's just say the first spawn you had, if it was an explosive spawn, I mean, would you cull any of them to? You know, I mean, I, I mean, again, it's it's not easy to like upgrade your entire enclosure like overnight i mean if you have a massive spawn i mean how, how would you how would you deal with something like that so there's actually a uh, a paper out there from accredited zoos um that has an outline on the breeding of that lopis tatecki and it plain and simple says that you need to be expected to population management control um you can't have too many you can overexert what resources you have to care for so many animals that it dooms them all, if that makes sense. So working with a smaller group and doing better overall versus trying to spread your resources thin can be a huge benefit. Um, it gets into a hairy carry topic when they're critically endangered species and you're calling for, you know, just population management and stuff like that. But it, it comes down to the survival of the animals too. Yeah, that's a, it's, a, it's a difficult... Whenever you get into the ethics, um, you know, I... I wouldn't, I didn't participate, but I was looking at a conversation online that two people were having about the ethics of culling invasive species. And I, I just, I didn't want to get involved, but, um, it's, it's definitely one of those things where, well, if you allow every tadpole to metamorphose, are you selecting for negative traits? Meaning, okay, well, if we let, I mean, it's, it's so difficult to recreate in captivity, but I mean, if you let every single tadpole develop, it's not 
realistic in terms of what would have happened in reality. Had yeah, happened you, you, in can, you can baby an animal too much, essentially. Yeah, yeah. And that's one of the things that I've kind of noticed over time is I've had different experiences acquiring frogs and certain people I've acquired frogs from. I've gotten very, very healthy animals that do extremely well. And then there was, there have been some fly-by-night incidences where I, I acquired frogs and they just they either failed to thrive because they were, you know, uh, they were imported or they would just, I mean, this is going to sound horrible, but they probably shouldn't have not, should not have been allowed to have metamorphosed in the first place. Uh, just, I've had that happen too. I've had animals I've purchased come to me and they would have been what an animal I have had call, or I would have called. Yeah. It's, it's difficult. It's very difficult. So to give a little bit more explanation on what I did, um, so only one of my females actually spawned. Um, I didn't have an exact count on eggs because I didn't want to tear apart the tank and disturb or risk anything and stuff like that. Um, the eggs are photosensitive, so light can damage them. Um, so I, they were in a little cavern, so I left them be. Uh, I pulled 410 tadpoles from my spawn tank and put them into my stream tank, which is what I managed the water quality on was 410 tadpoles. Um, I would say I had about 750 tadpoles from one female spawn. That's a lot of tadpoles. It, it is a, a lot, a lot, a lot. Um, I did not have to call any per se, but what I did was I managed the 410 individuals in the stream tank, and then the spawn tank, after I removed the adults, after they spawned, I left the remainder two 300 tads or whatever in that small tank and i kind of used that tank as an experiment um i did not manage the water quality in there the same i kind of just left it be a little bit and i just monitored what the parameters were so i could like there, there was definitely a die-off once the tadpoles grew to a certain size um, and they ate all the natural algae out inside the tank as much as i could feed the small amount of water volume I had to battle water quality with. So I couldn't feed as heavily as needed for that many tadpoles in that small of a space. Um, so there was a natural die off of the, the strongest, uh, the, the fittest survive. What's that term? What's the survival of the fittest survival of the fittest. There we go. Sorry. Brain fart. Yeah. Survival of the fist in that tank. Um, I, I had some morph out in there real nice too. Um, but out of the 410, I had over 300 come out of water. Um, you know, not all 300 lived, of course. It was survival of the fittest with them all coming out of the water. Um, with them coming out in mass numbers like that, there was some size differences. There was some color differences and everything, too. And I think that had to do with, with how fit they were as well. Well, that's exactly it. I mean, there's, there's some frogs. I mean, whether they... Whether they fail to thrive as an egg or a tadpole or as a froglet, it, it's kind of going to happen eventually anyway. Yep. So it's, yeah, it's, it's, it's such a difficult thing, you know, especially when you have something that, I mean, I've, I've had a couple of tadpoles morph out recently and after like a couple of weeks, you can kind of see who doesn't look good. And I mean, I'm not dealing with a, a tremendous amount here and I'm not going to, I mean, I'm not going to call one tad, one froglet out of four. I'm going to try and give everybody a chance but you kind of know who's not going to do well. And it's, it's, it's like you said, it's difficult to say, but it's almost like it's going to happen on its own anyway, unless you really, really coddle them. 
Yep. Now, what were you feeding the, the, the well, they're not frogs, they're toads, but what, what were you feeding the, well, toads are frogs, but frogs aren't toads. So, or is it the <laughs> other way around? Yeah. What, what were you feeding the, 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 the toadlets after they, after they um, metamorphosed? When they first morphed out, they actually left the water with a tiny bit of tail still. So they didn't eat for a couple days. It took, as soon as they absorbed their tail, um, and they could walk around a little better and they didn't just hang around and sit still. I, uh, I stocked the tanks with springtails, but the adult springtails even seemed too big. I actually used a, uh, a grain mite and soil mites, like wood mites. Um, I bought a bunch of peat moths and I made like a giant springtail cultures, like, like a hundred of them. And I was trying to do these large cultures and put all the little toadlets in them. And then I put toadlets in tanks. And I, I kind of tried to raise them like a bunch of different ways to see what worked best. Um, and inside those springtail cultures on the peat moss, a bunch of little tiny wood mites showed up. And those were actually one of the favorites. And inside fruit fly cultures, um, when fruit fly cultures get a little bit older, the large grain mites that show up. Not the tiny, itty bitty, dusty ones on the lid, but those big, fat, beady-looking mites that are in the bottom of the fruit fly culture. Um, those were a favorite as well. My old cultures, I'd take scissors and I'd cut the excelsior off the top, and I'd like set those little excelsior tops um, in the tanks with those mites on it, and they would pick off that. And then I would move the toads um, in and out of the springtail cultures. I'd put leaf litter and bits of bark and stuff like that in there. And I would move the toads back and forth um, in those cultures eating. And as they would eat an entire culture um, out of springtails, I would move them to the next active culture. The, the ones that did the absolute best um, were the very first group that came out of the water inside the totes. And the ones that I put right inside the uh, grow out tanks with the adults, um, those tiny toadlets seemed to just between the, all the springtails and stuff in the tank and then in the grow outs or the springtail containers and inside the tanks with the adults did really well. The small cups I tried to raise them in did not seem to do well. When I had to open and close the lids periodically, it seemed to disturb them too much. So the, the more I could leave them alone and the less disturbing, the better. Hmm. Cool. Cool. Cool stuff. And, and, and it took a, a long while, too. They didn't start eating Melanogaster fruit flies till almost four months old. That's a, yeah, that's, see, I could see how that could be intimidating to someone. Yeah. So that was, that was definitely something to worry about. Um, out of the 300 that came out of water, um, by the time they started taking flies, I was working with about 100 of them. So you had some, you had some die off. Yes. Okay. Yep. So the very first initial ones was actually like it, some of this is trial and error. They were so incredibly tiny that they fit out of the vents of exoterra tanks on the door, like the little tiny internal slats. Yeah. That's like, so they were a little bit bigger than a melanogaster. Yeah. They were like maybe two or three Heidi flies was I mean, Heidi, I, I'm sorry. coming meant, out of water. I meant Heidi. So they I'm could sorry. slip out of this vent. So the very first night I pulled toadlets the next morning when I woke up, when I went into my frog room, 
there was these little black specks on the floor below the door and it was the toadlets escaping and dropping out and that you know they're so small they could make it four or five inches before they dried out yeah like little raisins yeah so i had to go through and tape off all the tanks almost completely um the water's viscosity was also dangerous they were so small that an actual droplet of water like caught them and they'd get stuck in a droplet of water like in an ant's life that that cartoon movie where they get stuck in a drop of water that's crazy <laughs> so i had to use a fogger so i essentially fogged it for humidity so there wasn't large droplets of water for them to get stuck to i mean i guess i mean when you think about where they live naturally you know by the streams i mean there's going to be a lot of humidity that's sort of trapped as that as it evaporates from the from you know, the movement the motion of the stream yep and for about the first month when they were incredibly tiny they did not leave the leaf litter and they stayed kind of tucked away in like the the idiot's little microclimates within the leaf litter it wasn't until they got some size that they started going up and roosting um in the canopies so how much how, how many times did you panic during this whole process all the time <laughs> there was a few times you know i, I went from having 300 toadlets to where I'd look in the tank and I'd see one or two for like a week at a time. Yeah, that that would that would drive me nuts. Uh, I mean, yeah. I, I'm like, I'm very very compulsive with certain things, and something like that, I would I would obsess over it nonstop to the point where I would just, you know, I'd be losing sleep over. I mean, I lose sleep over stuff now, and it's like, you know, uh, I, I don't know. So we're kind of getting uh, winding down to the end, but I mean, before we wrap up, I mean, is there any, one of the things, actually, yeah, before we wrap up, there's one last thing I wanted to ask about, you know, in terms of uh, Fragile Planet, you have like, uh, like a symbolic adoption program and one of them, you actually have an adoptive frog. You want to just tell the listeners about that before we kind of wind down? I'll actually uh, switch over to my significant other, Tyler, um, because he's the one that manages all of the, the outreach or interactive and adoptive or website aspects of our organization. Absolutely. Yeah. Hey Dan, how are you? I'm well, Tyler. I guess this is the first time you're hearing me on the show. Yeah, I know. Um, I feel, I feel bad. I, we, we exchanged about three syllables earlier and, uh, I know you've been, you've been patient as, uh, Nick and I have been going on for the past hour, hour and a half. No, that's all right. So our, our adoption, our animal adoption programs, I guess, most specifically with the frogs in this point. Um, so, for instance, if you adopt a, a frog, that money is utilized towards um, our amphibian program. So basically, we utilize the money, which is classified as a donation, um, as a restricted fund to help take care of, you know, things like the Atlopus project um, and just, uh, you know, a variety of other amphibian needs. Um, and again, it's a it's kind of a restricted fund base where it's, it's specifically geared towards it. Um, with the adoption programs, it kind of is linked right now to like a Patreon um where we would post content um however what doesn't really work with the frog is nick posts so much content um <laughs> it's, almost, it's almost like the patreon part is a little null and void um but that is you know it's 
as of right now, that's the method we use to collect funding for that. Um, and then usually anyone who's donating there is already following Nick on Instagram or Facebook um, or Reddit or any one of his myriad of social media accounts where he broadcasts uh, all his work. And uh, to jump in here too, some of the stuff we've done with uh, the donations and stuff with uh, ocelots, for example, um, our ocelots do paintings. So for enrichment, we'll put paint on a canvas and they'll mark all over it. Um, and those get sent or sold for auction. And in return, that proceeds we've donated to the Laguna Atascosha National Wildlife down here, which is the, the last native range for ocelots where they have a breeding population. Um, and that goes into the biologists studying and tracking the animals, um, the tracking collars, solar waterers, uh, waterers, four-wheelers, lab equipment, and stuff like that as well. Amazing. Absolutely amazing. Well, listen, Nick, Tyler, I want to thank the both of you, you know, for everything that you've shared with us tonight. I think it's it's absolutely amazing. Now, if anyone wanted to learn more about Fragile Planet, I mean, how would they find you guys? I mean, I, I mean, look, I can't believe I just said that because your social media presence is huge. But for anyone else out there like me who's not a big social media person, how would they kind of find out more? We have a Facebook and Instagram for Fragile Planet um, and the website, of course, fpwildlife.com um, and my personal page. You can feel free to send the pages a message, email us an inquiry um, or message me personally as well. So my phone's always in my pocket. Sometimes it might take me a couple of days to reply, but I, I try to get to, back to everybody. All right, everyone. That was uh, Nick, Nick Stacy, and Tyler. I want to thank you guys again so much for being on the show. I think it's been really, really enlightening. So, guys, thank you so much. And to everybody else out there, I hope you guys enjoyed this this week's show. We're coming up on... I was looking at my uh, tracker before, and it uh, looks like we're coming up on uh, 2,500 downloads. So, to everyone out there who listens... You guys are what makes this. Uh, you guys are what make this all possible. And I'm always thankful to all my listeners. And I will catch up again with you guys soon. Mm-hmm.